Hola, I'm Elias Torres, co-founder and CTO of Drift. You're listening to the American Dream Podcast. On this show, we talk to leaders who have achieved their own version of the American Dream. But we also focus on the work that needs to be done to create a more consistent and diverse face of corporate America. That's why I'm setting aside time to talk to leaders of nonprofit organizations, the people leading the charge to build a brighter future for the next generation. Bienvenidos a todos. That means welcome to everyone. I'm excited to welcome some of our own drifters to this week's episode of the American Dream Podcast. John Cole and Ezine Obona. They're members of Drift's newest employee resource group called First Gen Adrift. I love this group. This is a community for drifters who identify as first-generation Americans, first-generation college graduates, or first-generation professionals to connect and grow professionally and create lasting mentorship bonds. It's important to have a community, to have mentors, to have bonds. Both John and Ezine are first-generation Americans and college students. John's family is originally from South Africa, and Ezine is from Nigeria. They are each going to share a little bit about their backgrounds. We're going to ask them lots of questions and why they've started this ERG. So let's get going. John and Ezine, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. Of course. Thank you so much. So patient. I know it took a few tries. <laughs> you persevere and here we are, like good first generation. <laughs> exactly. Perfection doesn't come in the first try though, right? Absolutely. Let's hear a little bit about you, who you are, where you came from, a little story there, a little history of your family. Ezine, you want to get us started? Sure, I'd love to get us started. So being that we're in the first generation theme, so I'm a first generation college graduate, first generation professional. My family came from Nigeria, I want to say in the late 80s. So I'm proudly Nigerian, specifically Igbo. And I'm from, I was born and raised in Prince George's County, Maryland. So shout out to everyone from the DMV. And I'm so proud to be from there because it's such a multicultural and diverse area. There's a lot of immigrant groups. So I kind of had that background of being around a lot of people, I guess, that were like me in that sense, where their parents were from somewhere else. And we were all kind of navigating this new space together. Then I went to University of Virginia, majored in sociology and did a couple of things and landed myself here at Drift, which has been exciting so far. But you were born in the U.S.? Yes, so I was born here. Yep. Got it, got it. John, how about you? So I am a first-generation American as well. I was born here in 1997 in upstate New York. My mother came from South Africa with my six-week older sister in a shoebox on an airplane in 1995. And then she moved to Ithaca, New York, and lived in a basement where my father, who had a job at the time in Ithaca, had told her, you know, it's great. Come to the United States. I've got an awesome place for us to live. And so she, she moved into this basement with no friends or family in the country, left her family behind. And then I was born there two years later. When I was about two or three, we moved to Elyria, Ohio, which is in the Cleveland area. And I was homeschooled growing up until about 12 or 13. And then I attended public school in Oberlin, Ohio, if you've heard of that small college town. No, I don't know anything in the middle of it. It's okay. No one does. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a forgettable part of the country, but shout out Midwest. <laughs> Midwest. You're Midwestern South African. So, so it must be like triple nice. Yeah, 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 exactly. Triple nice. I try to lead life with kindness and empathy. I'm also a very naturally, I think, sensitive person, but 
I grew up because I was homeschooled and insulated and my mother actually taught us. She did not have any college education, you know, coming to the States. And so there was kind of an agreement between her and my father where she would stay home and kind of curate a curriculum for us. And so she put her heart and soul into doing that. But it created this very insular household in terms of like cultural distinction between what American neighborhood kids were doing. And my parents used that rhetoric very often growing up is this is what Americans do. And this is how Americans are and values and perceptions, even how you speak to your parents, right? Like I'm sure all the three of us on this phone call right now (laughs) will say like, you don't speak to your parents in a certain way. And so it just made me feel like kind of a black sheep as I was the only person in my family who was born here. So that's a little bit about my background, but I don't want to hijack the entire conversation here right off the bat. That's a super interesting conversation. There's this stereotype, which I don't know how much of a stereotype is, but (laughs) I'm just going to do it. There's this thing called La Chancla. Have you ever heard of La Chancla? Like the shoe that you yeah, throw. Exactly. Yeah, I know. Here, I just dropped something, but <laughs> there you go. That's my chancla right there. It's uh, like there's these YouTube videos. People should look them up, and it's like and the stereotype is a Latina mother never misses. Chancla, boom, flying over the sky, and just like that thing can just find you anywhere. You know, you yeah. can like go around doors and hallways and bam, smack you right in the middle. No, I agree. it's funny you say that I was born in Nicaragua, right? So, and I came when I was 17. So, I definitely have a lot of the Latino culture from over there. And I still, to this day, refer to people as Americans. Like, that's how Americans do things because I'm very different. Today, I was walking my dog in suburbia, New England, and my dog is extroverted like me, so we're both friendly. We want to talk to people. We want to say hi to people. We want to interact with people. But the, no one in the neighborhood is like that. A classic New Englander, suburbia woman walking a dog is like this. Let's go, let's go. And their dog and them behave the same, and they don't want to talk to people. And my dog is like whimpering, like, let's go talk to them. And we're like, I'm like, no, she's not friendly. Let's go. That reminds me of a story that my mom told me when she first came to the States, how like exactly you just kind of walk by people, you don't really talk to them. So I guess someone happened to glance at her and she thought they were like telling her to come over and talk to them. So she like came over. She was like, what, like, what's up? And the person's like, what, like, what's going on? Because I mean, usually I guess like we can all relate, like in other countries, you can socialize a bit more with like strangers, people in the neighborhood. It's like normal to commune in that way. My mother has an exact similar story. The first gas station she stopped at in the United States, she asked for coffee and she didn't understand the American accent saying half and half and half and half is not something that they have in other parts of the world. And actually in other parts of the world, we have good coffee. And so she just didn't understand what that was. She wasn't used to that, but she like asked the person to repeat themselves three times. And finally it was like, okay, I'll just take whatever that is. Did not like it, but <laughs> you know, that's her her story there. But it speaks to this broader theme that I think all the three of us are mentioning where in the United States, it it is very culturally insular. People think that everything is here. This is the center of the world. And I think it is not natural for Americans to think globally and think internationally and really want to pay attention to other cultures, values, or even languages. Like it's pretty crazy how few Americans actually speak another language. And even the disdain that we have for immigrants who speak another language and English is not their first language. I am lucky enough to have 
so many privileges that are associated even with my voice and my accent being an American accent, but so many other people, LESU on the phone, right? Like you must be treated in a certain way because English is not your first language. Americans sometimes see that as something to scorn and, oh, I'm, I have to pay extra brain power in order to understand something or process, but it's actually this amazing thing. Like you speak more than one language. That is an incredible asset. And so that's a theme in the United States. And I think it's one of the necessities for a group like this is to recognize that it's actually amazing to be multicultural, to be international. There's so much more. The world is in a huge place. And one of the recent episodes that you had with Ghana's Ventures and the host there, Lolita, she was saying that the Latin American population is twice that of the United States. And so people in the United States won't know that because they wouldn't imagine that there is an important market outside of our global north like framework. But there's a whole world out there. And it's so important to pay attention to that. Yeah, I think I heard a stat that said, I don't know the stat, and most stats are wrong, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's something like the majority, I don't know, 80%, 89% or something like that of the people in the United States have never left their hometown, right? It's it's some oh wow crazy number and the mile radius of what they've seen. And so people were making claim. I mean, it, I mean, America, United States, I forget America. I keep saying America. America is the continent, <laughs> the United States. The U.S. is a beautiful country, so big, so large, so much nature, so many different places, right? So compared to Europe, you go to other countries to visit because it's so small. Here, you can spend your whole life trying to get to know this country, right? So it's, it's fascinating, but why a lot of people have never left the country, right? It gives you a different perspective. I love that comment about the basement. Uh, I think that that's another first-gen thing. Somebody else would be like, oh. Uh, your father, what did he do? That was the setup. That was a clickbait. That was a bait and switch. But the reality is for us immigrants, you should see the first apartment that I had in Tampa, Florida with my mother. It was a shoebox, right? And it was disgusting. It was dirty. It was dark. It, it was tiny. It felt like a, like a toy house, right? But he had two bedrooms. And I was so excited. You know what? Because this was us on our own being independent because it's really hard in our countries. I think in my in Nicaragua, for example, to buy a home, to be a property owner, if you were not born with that property, it's really difficult to be able to save up. It's hard to get a mortgage when I was growing up. It's hard to have, there's no credit cards. And to save up, you, you barely make enough to live. Like you cannot save up to make a house payment. And so coming to this country, that was like so exciting that I could work and I could actually pay for things, even if they were not that great. It was rented, but I could say it was ours because we could afford and pay for it. And, and that made me feel so good as our first step when we set foot in this country. So it's not a bad thing. I, I felt the warm and fuzzies when you said the basement because your father must have been so so happy, so glad that he had a place. Yeah, it's very difficult to drop everything and fly to a place where you have no family no friends, no connections, really. And that's one of the things that I admire most about my mother in particular and all of our parents and you, Elias, right? And you've spoken about how it's something that your children, not that you need them to comprehend, because ideally no, none of us are wanting our children to go through the hard things we went through, but we also want them to have an understanding of their own privilege. So it's just something that I admire because I have studied abroad. I've lived in, in China for seven months altogether. And it's hard to go somewhere else where you don't know anybody, but to pick up and leave and just decide I'm going to start fresh and make my own life, like that's incredibly difficult. That's exactly what I think makes 
as different as first-gen immigrants, right? Overcoming that is like step zero, right? Like being able to do that opens you up to the world, right? To the sky is the limit. And I think that that inner hustle is what's very common, I think. As in, you, you have that hustle, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I definitely want to echo everything you all were saying because it's really wild, and especially now that I think about it as a young adult and having to figure out everything on my own. It's wild to me that my parents literally said, let's go to a place where we don't know anyone and start a new life. And it's a really great thing that it's worked out. I'm a young professional, I'm making money. But yeah, in our own way, being first generation, we had to do our own hustle. So I know like in high school, because college applications cost a lot of money. And just, I think when you get to a certain age of understanding, you don't want to burden your parents financially. So I think I kind of took on this responsibility of like, okay, start making your own money so you can buy your own things and not have to be another expense for your parents. So I like randomly, like I was actually running for like student government. So people like try to persuade voters and I like made brownies to persuade the voters. But then people kept saying how good it was and they were like, you need to sell this. And I was like, oh, like I never thought about that. So literally I would go to school every day in the morning, go to extracurriculars after school. After that, I would come home, walk to the grocery store, buy all the ingredients and like literally have like a bakery in our like tiny kitchen and like make a bunch of brownies and cookies and things like that. And then I would sell it the next day at school. And I made, I definitely made a lot of money, like at least like thousands over my high school career, but it was just nice being able to have that money to like apply to colleges when it came time for that or pay for field trips or just help out with expenses around the house. I don't know, that experience really helped teach me that hustle and learn financial literacy as well because I got to make my first bank account because I had all that money. Yeah, so it was just interesting navigating that experience, like being first gen. I love how you went from political bribery to... uh, (laughs) And I didn't win. I somehow didn't win, but I guess I I won in the end because... Somehow, you're like, I don't know what happened. (laughs) I would rather have thousands in the bank and have applied to a university than be student (laughs) government president. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Never too late. You can still be president of multiple things. You can be like <laughs> and try to buy Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Well, one thing that I wanted to point out about your story, Ezine, is that it's amazing that you taught yourself financial literacy, right? Because I think when we're talking about being first generation, whether it's an immigrant, whether it's the first person in your family to get a certain level of education or the first person in your family to break into a professional field like the tech world, right? We don't have any of what's called generational capital or cultural capital or social capital, right? And these words can somewhat be interchanged, but essentially like if you don't have a parent that is used to a certain system or you don't have a parent that has cultural capital within a given society and structure, then you do have to pioneer. And well, it's not the best choice of words, but you do have to be that trailblazer in your family and like teach yourself these very difficult skills. I know so many people who go out of college and they get golden handcuffed or something, or they just, they don't know what to do with their paychecks. They also have to support their families. That's a huge burden that a lot of first generation folks feel is they don't have dependents in terms of they haven't had children, but they do have to give money to their families. And none of the financial literacy workshops, none of those budgeting nerd wallet type things, none of them talk about that demographic of people, which is huge in this country. How do you budget given that you want to provide for your parents and siblings, not kids? Because it's, I think, like the Eurocentric white normative narrative is that you're going to graduate college at 21 or 22, and then you're going to have 
top five to 10 good years of earning money. And then you're going to have your kids and maybe your parents will help you with a down payment on your first house. And maybe you get a car from your parents too. And that's, I think, slowly changing in our culture, but it is absolutely not true for a lot of people for, I would say most people. And so the foundation of this group is to start a community within Drift to recognize and acknowledge drifters that have not had those advantages and opportunities, but also to find solidarity and community and share experiences with one another. I'm 24. I'm at the very start of my career. So are you, Ezine? I don't have a very solid network of mentors right now. And I haven't had too many people to tell me, yo, don't do this, don't do that. Or I learned this from this experience. And so I'm, I'm really trying to establish because there's a lot of people at Drift, such as yourself, Elias, that are first generation and much older than myself who can be mentors and have a great impact on their coworkers and their colleagues. So that's kind of the goal. That's fantastic. I think that was a great definition and inspiring definition of the ERG, right? Which is an employee resource group. As companies grow and you can start creating and you start looking at the team as a whole and find common interests, right? And common attributes that people as humans, we like to identify. And I don't think there's absolutely anything wrong with it, right? It's like, we're all humans and that's it, right? It's like, we want to have things in common with others because that is what drives our conversations, our fellowship, our mentorship, and our community. And so there could be many different things. We have several ERGs at Drift, right? We have Latino, we have women, we have environmentally conscious, mental health, disabilities, everything, right? And so it's, it's exciting as we grow that people are, you know, finding that and having sub-communities within the Drift community as a whole. I love that it's really about... I do not want to use the word normalize as an older person, <laughs> but I like what you said, right, of making people more comfortable, right? I think it's a lot about education to me. It's education and role models, for example. Usually everybody, when we're young, I think that regardless of whether you have a family to support you that has your backing, a family that can give you a car or help you with your down payment, as opposed to my situation where I did not have that, right, neither of those things. We're all anxious in one way or another because we're young and we want to figure out what's next and how we're going to achieve that independent status, that purpose. You know, that moment in our life where we feel like, okay, I have, I don't know, maybe sometimes the picture is a family and a house, right? It's like, you know, maybe that's a common thing. But like we have this anxiety of how do we establish ourselves, right? So I think that that's common to everybody. And it's good to talk about people and show people that, it's possible and it's going to happen. The question is what steps we should take to get there, right? And, and what support we need along the way. And that, in fact, is the definition of this podcast, right? It's the American dream. It's like everybody should be able to have access to their own version of success, right, in this country through hard work and without without discrimination. So I, I love that. I love that. Tell me more about what are the kinds of things that either of you, both of you, when you're starting your careers, what do you think you need help? What do you think it's wrong? Or what do you think you're doing well? So I really like how you mentioned that what's key is education, because that brought me back to like high school. And quite literally, the only reason I was able to go to college, go to college for free and have the resources I had was because of a program specifically designed for first generation, low income high school students to literally from day one in ninth grade to prep them to get into college. However, I really like, I guess I was so dependent on that program in high school that I didn't realize like there's not really something like that for college and there's definitely not 
that type of support for like post-grad and being in the working world, I feel like that would be very helpful. Like I know John mentioned like mentorship, because now that we're like in the early stages of our career exploring, okay, is this what I want to do? Where do I go next? Like you said, what do you do? What don't you do? It would be nice, I don't know, through this ERG or just even like on a larger scale for a lot of first generation professionals just to have some network of support of other mentors who are in higher positions, who have navigated corporate America and all that that entails and can give those resources to guide us newbies along the way. Kind of like I I had the program was called Upward Bound. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but that literally from ninth grade, like teaches you everything that you need to do and make sure that you take your SAT and that you're in all the right classes. Because a lot of these schools, especially in low income neighborhoods, don't really, at least in my experience, didn't do their due diligence in supporting students. So we had to get outside help. And a lot of times like Drift is a great company, but not every company has resources to really ensure that everyone is like succeeding and excelling and getting to where they want to be. What do you think, John? Have you heard of any organizations? Post-college. Post-college organizations. There's the Society of Hispanic Engineers. There's several different organizations that I know my peers were a part of when they were in college that are also professional organizations, but not as many that I think are first generation specific that I've heard of, at least on a national scale. I think that as we progress as a society and we kind of normalize diversity and how genuinely multicultural and diverse our society is we will see groups emerge and we have seen groups emerge like Black at Drift having an ERG like that. Can you imagine 10 years ago, there were very few companies that would have entertained a group like that. And it's amazing that we have that. But I think one of the reasons, again, that I admire you, Elias and, and DC so much is because we're talking about our struggles in an era of LinkedIn where we can message someone and ask someone, hey, do you have time for a phone call? And you guys, the scrappiest, like just trying to make it happen over the phone, maybe in the in-person meetings or nothing at all and just being scrappy. And so I think that same idea of wanting to make it easier for whoever comes before us, but with an understanding that it is easier, that's a very difficult line to balance. So I want to create mentorship. And another thing that you mentioned sometimes on the podcast is this idea of imposter syndrome and how now at your your level, like you're a C-level executive, you've abandoned this imposter syndrome and you will champion, hey, here's the Latinx community. Here's how Latinos do business. Here's how we do things. Here's what we want. I'm going to, I'm never going to be shy about saying that. I think young people, especially my generation, as a generation do have that imposter syndrome, but to do away with that myself, what I've done is actually reach out as a mentor to other people. So as soon as I graduated, even though I was 22, didn't really know what I was doing. I started joining the Melior Collective at my university, which is a one-to-one mentorship program. And I actually now have three mentees that I have helped find internships and that I work with, have bi-weekly calls, things like that. And I realized that I do actually have a lot to offer by way of my own experience. And it's something that builds up my own confidence and realize, oh, okay, for as much as I feel like a deer in headlights sometime, I really do have things to offer others as well because mentorship is so essential. And I want to call out a current drifter who is on the Latinx at Drift ERG podcast episode of the American Dream, Francisco Oler Garcia. And he he's awesome. And he said, our past is the foundation for what we want our future to be. As long as we honor our roots, we can create new opportunities for others. And we should strive every day to help others get where they want to go. Which I listened to that podcast and I was like, how was that not a sound bite of uh, or an inspirational quote somewhere because I think that also echoes a, a message of what we're trying to do here at First Gen at Drift is, is really empower one another and help other people go where they want to go. Francisco is amazing. And what a human being. And wow, that quote is so powerful. 
I was zeroing on that specific thing as well. I'll tell you my personal experience, a couple of things on the imposter syndrome, is that I don't like posers, right? I had this problem, right? This, I had different levels of imposter syndrome where I don't like people that just brag so much about what they have, what they are, or they do. It's like, I always felt uncomfortable. Like, I'll just say it bluntly. Like, a lot of people are like, I want to be on a panel. I, I want to be speaker. I want to, that's something that attracts people to feel status and accomplishment. And then they're like on a panel with 10 people and the panel is 10 and there's only like 10 attendees and they're like bragging about that. And so I always like felt like I don't want to brag about stuff because I don't want to get called out. I think culturally in Latin America, if you over brag, you get called out. In the United States, you brag about whatever and everybody's like, oh my God, you're amazing. So I don't know. That's an immigrant thing. Like, I don't think it's good in Latin America if you always get pulled down. But in, in the United States, it always you get pushed up, right? And so I always had this concern whether I could help or not help people. Like I was like, do I have to be at a specific plateau to help? And I think that that was a mistake on my part. So I think you, you're doing fantastic by realizing, as long as you do it with humility, that you can always help somebody else, right? You know, you can help someone that is in college. You can help someone that is just applying for the first time. Because they're looking, like you guys are saying, for mentorship, right? And they might not get access to me necessarily because I cannot talk to every high school student, right? But they can, people that are closer, right, to them and still get great advice. So I, I think that's a very, very good statement to make, right? That is, don't wait to help someone else, right? Because we need people to be kind of like what we said originally, as in, as in that we said, we're like your mother saw somewhere, right? And she wanted to talk. She was looking for a connection. And people are like, no, that's what everybody's looking for. Somebody to say, hey, what's up? How can I help you? What do you need? So I, I think that's, that's awesome. And, and from an imposter syndrome, I would say it's like, I think imposter syndrome is healthy in many ways, right? I think it's normal. Back to that. And I'm 45, right? And, and I have been, been so fortunate and blessed to have the accomplishments I have had to finally try to shed it, right, in some aspects of me. In others, I, I'm not. Like, I have terrible English. I'm a bad writer. So it's not like I can shed imposter in every aspect of my life. But I think it was healthy. I think in some ways it, it, it drove me and motivated me to do better, to do more. And I don't know if it's something we've got to get rid of it at 20, right, or whatever. I don't know. What do you guys think? Should we use it or should we not use it? Should we eradicate imposter syndrome in the world? When it comes to, I guess, things like imposter syndrome and like confidence, it's always, I feel a tricky thing for me to talk about, maybe because I'm Nigerian and Nigerians are known for being super confident, super successful. Like, if anything, maybe I would have the opposite of imposter syndrome where it's just like, I like I know that I can, like, you're not going to tell me that I can't, like, I don't really doubt that I can sometimes, but it's interesting that I guess you can see it in a positive light. I think it's really important for everyone to know that they're capable. And just because you can't do one thing doesn't mean that like you can't do anything or just because you fail one time, two times, three times, just because you completely are terrible. Like there's this quote that goes, anyone who's an expert was terrible the first time they did it. Terrible probably the first 10 times they did it, but the difference is consistency. So 
I think a lot of times, especially being so young and in this age of social media where you literally LinkedIn and Instagram, you can literally see your peers' accomplishments in real time. You only see when, oh, they got this amazing job. You're not seeing the countless interviews they had to go through and rejections they had to go through. So I think it's just important for people to, I guess, yeah, do away with imposter syndrome, but understand that if you want to do something just for the fact that you want to do it, you can. You just have to be consistent. And yeah, just literally, quite literally, like be consistent, but nothing really innately should stop anyone from doing anything that they set their mind to. That's an amazing learning. That's good. So there is no imposter in Nigeria. Good. <laughs> oh, de- definitely. I know it's super like we take our pride very seriously. Like there's right. no, not at all. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. That's something we should dig a little bit deeper. I would say imposter syndrome to me was Hold on, you said, what What were your key definitions? And sometimes it's not good to dwell on definitions too much, but it's like, <laughs> it's not fear of failure or it's not fear that I, I wasn't going to able to do something. I'll give an example. I never doubted in my mind at the beginning of Drift that our goal was to, to create a multi-billion dollar company. And I did not doubt that I could do it, meaning from the optimist side of things, right? I'm not saying that I always had that thought. It's a roller coaster mentally, right? Depending on what's happening, how you feel. To me, imposter syndrome was a little bit more like is that when we compare ourselves with others, right? If I saw another company that was, if we were drift for three years and we were three years and another company is three years and they were like 10 times the revenue or 10 times the value or something, and then you would be like, when I would be comparing myself with peers, I was like, am I as good as them, right? They look like they have had better education or more accomplishments or whatever. And so am I an imposter because I'm playing in the same game and I don't have the same? That's kind of to me that not necessarily afraid of failure because we're all in the game, right? It's like <laughs> along the way. Yeah, but even then... Because like you said, comparison can be like a terrible thing because that can even, like you said, it can stunt you. It's terrible. (laughs) I didn't say that was good. I'm just saying that. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And I think maybe that's why it's important to, is it compete with yourself? Because I, I feel like I felt similarly because I graduated college almost two years ago now. And right after, even in 2020, you know, people are getting like jobs at these top companies, already hitting six figures, getting apartments. And I'm like, I don't want to leave the house because I don't want to get my parents sick. And it can be really easy to just like sit in that and feel like, oh man, like I, like, what am I doing with my time? We graduate at the same time. They're making more money. But I think it even goes back to what I was saying before. You can't forget like who you are and what your innate value is just because you fit, even if it took me 10 years to like land a decent job, like I think there's a phrase like you peaked early or something, not saying people who like got good jobs immediately peaked early, but there's so much opportunity and so much chance for you to grow at any point. You don't know, okay, maybe you had like in the first three years, it was rocky for drift, but the next five years can be better than, you know, the people that you started out with. So you, you never know what the future can hold and to like still be consistent. Would you like to be my mentor? I would love to put it on my resume. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Just it's like, no, you're amazing. I love I love that. You remind me of my daughter, but I'm gonna I'm gonna have her listen to this. But it's like <laughs> I, I asked her the other day because I feel like a lot of people have anxiety like in, you know, late twenties and they're like, Oh, where am I in my career? Where where's my credit? There's this thing, you know, trying to educate people. Like it's like we there's these laws in the United States that you cannot invest in startups unless you make specific amount of money or have a specific amount of assets, right? It's like the minimum. And so there's a lot of debate of 
whether we should have those barriers to investing in startups. Is it really to protect people from losing money or is it really to shield them from having access to generational wealth? And then they're concerned about this stuff, like, when am I going to get this one? Something I never knew. And so they're like, this. let's say these people are like 27 to 30. My daughter is 19. She's a freshman in college. And I asked her the other day, how do you feel you're doing? Are you anxious? Are you like, what do you need to be accomplishing? Are you behind? Are you ahead? What do you think? And she goes, I'm right where I need to be. She goes, I'm at school and I'm learning how to program. She gets it. Yeah. That's zen. <laughs> I'm like, I just started college, she goes, and like, and yeah. I'm taking programming classes and I'm loving it. And I was like, wow. That's a beautiful perspective to have because I definitely, yeah. at 19 years old, was not, I was very confused. <laughs> I, I think the difference between imposter syndrome then and like humility, right? I think imposter syndrome, the way that we're describing it is if, if other people, and by other people, I also mean your own ego, your own shadow on your back. If other people are telling you, you don't deserve to be in this room, you don't deserve to do this, you're not, you're going to fail, you're not going to measure up. That needs to go. Imposter syndrome, that needs to go. Humility and cognition that you need to work really, really hard. And maybe you're not where you need to be, but right. you will get there and you can get there. That is a healthy mindset, right? That is a healthy relationship with oneself. And so the imposter syndrome that comes from external factors, for example, if there's a systemic barrier or everybody else in a room looks completely different from you or has a different background, that is not the same as feeling like, oh, I'm so awesome and I'm, I'm like the best in this room, right? Like that, uh, there are two different distinctions there. And I think, yeah, the purpose of a group like this is to collect people so that we are not held back by these external imposter syndrome factors but rather that we can just critically reflect on our own capacity and hopefully arrive at your daughter's incredible level of self-awareness for her age, which is I'm right where I need to be. And where I need to be is keep working hard, keep setting goals, medium, long-term goals. And if I can find a mentor or someone who can advise me and help me realize what those goals are, find some clarity, align with what does success mean to me and my family, that's essential. And I also just wanted to say that in terms of external factors, as you know, you mentioned how expensive the college application process was. When I applied for college, my family of four was making $18,000 a year. And I actually was not going to apply to college because, you know, Elias and you and DC mentioned in one of the first episodes of this podcast that you both had really turbulent environments in terms of the father figure in your life growing up. And that's something that I echo strongly. I actually grew up in a household with a lot of domestic violence. And so growing up at 17, I actually had someone verbally telling me, I'm not going to swear on the podcast, but a lot of really terrible things about myself that made me feel like I wasn't going to be able to go to college, that there was something wrong with me. So I wasn't going to bother applying. And he also said that I wasn't tough enough to join the military because that's the only way someone would pay for it. But I had a wonderful guidance counselor who based on my grades, asked me, where's your essay? And I didn't know anything about the process. My mom didn't know what fat, like what's FAFSA? FAFSA. How do you say it? What is that? <laughs> and it was it was just a, a whirlwind. And I, I was so, so lucky to have had someone there that asked me and stopped me in the hallway that day, uh, Katie Hayes, because had I not had that, I probably would not be where I am today. But also it shaped the entire trajectory of my life, right? I, in my last year of school, elected to do an additional year of gender studies classes so that I could intern at a domestic violence center in Rochester, New York. And then I went from that job and I started working there during the pandemic in the residential facility while I looked for tech jobs and to make money for my family because unfortunately social work and nonprofit was not going to you know help my mom out but 
the point of what I'm saying though is that these external factors, whether it, even if it's from your own home or from from someone around you that's telling you you're not good enough, my hope is that we have communities like First Gen at Drift, like other ERGs here that can help build people up, so that whatever barriers that they've had, which yes create resiliency, are lessened slightly. And that's really important. So again, I just want to shout out my man Francisco for that very amazing quote, because helping others is, is really at the core. I think you should always be looking ahead and behind you. You're not going to get to age 45 and finally be there. Okay, now I'm in a position where I'm set to help people, right? But when you're 22, you're still pretty dumb, but you're not as dumb as you were when you were 21. So maybe you should tell some 21-year-olds, maybe don't do this. So I just again, I just want to thank you, that personal connection. You're very inspiring to me. Very inspiring. You guys are both unbelievable. You have amazing stories, amazing perspective, and you're growing and maturing just fine, you know, and guess what? We all have challenges to overcome, and yet you are in control of your destiny, right? And like you said, it, it might take times, and we worry about our own execution, and I think together and through community, through sharing stories uh, like this podcast, hearing your both of your stories is Hopefully, this has to be very useful to others as well to listen. So, hopefully, that's the goal. <laughs> if they pick up the show and they and they listen to it, please share it. And I think there's just so much wisdom that, that you guys are bringing to the conversation. Thank you so much for being on this show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Elias, for the platform. Thanks for listening to the American Dream Podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe so you never miss when a new episode drops. If you like this episode, please leave a six-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're interested in learning more about my American Dream mission, subscribe to my newsletter linked in the show notes.